Hey, this is broadcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off this week, so please enjoy this encore presentation from November 10th. A scathing report out today reveals illegal taxpayer-funded campaigning by high-level members of the disgraced ex-president's administration and White House and his failure to do anything about it. Yeah, well, tell us something we didn't know, Nicole. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling there's something right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Hey, from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Jamesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites. We hope. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. And all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, which if you have listened to for any amount of time or read bradblog.com for any amount of time, I think it's no secret I'm in favor of democracy. And I'm not embarrassed to say so, Desi Doyen. Oh, you're going to say it right out. I'm just putting it right out there. Right out there on a limb, man. Yep. Uh, And I think it's fair to say that I have come to learn uh, a bit about how elections and election law works in this country over the nearly two decades now that I have been covering them. And yet, on occasion, I will learn something new about election law that absolutely blows my mind. Today is one of those days. And when that happens, I will often go running and screaming to our friends at the Campaign Legal Center, folks like Brendan Fisher there, to sort of talk me off the ledge, to tell me that I'm wrong, that I I, I don't understand, I've misunderstood something here. Sadly, he almost never does. (laughs) He almost never talks me off the cliff. He only makes things worse. So stand by for my head and yours to be blown yet again today when Brendan joins us uh, momentarily to discuss a new ruling by the FEC guaranteed to blow your head apart, as the old song goes. Also a bit later, we'll have the latest terrible news for Donald Trump. So at least you'll have that to look forward to today. Yeah, you're welcome. But first, the uh, complicated and difficult and maddening negotiations between about 200 countries countries continues at the UN climate summit COP26 
Worst name ever for a climate uh, uh, summit. Yeah, these diplomats love these dumb names. Uh, This is in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. It continues today. I think it's day 10 as the parties uh, work toward a statement and a pledge that all countries must sign on to by the time it's all said and done at the end of this week, I think. Yes. Now, you think the U.S. Senate is bad. They've got to get unanimity from all, I think it's 196 countries. Yes. uh, By the end of the week for whatever agreement or statement that they will issue at the end of the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties or COP. Whether they can strike such an agreement, well, that remains to be seen. There's a long way to go. There's a lot of disagreement, as usual. Many concerns from activists that current pledges by nations to cut greenhouse gas emissions to try and stave off the worst impacts of our growing climate crisis, that those pledges will not be nearly enough to avoid what's coming or to stay below the uh, two degrees Celsius rise in warming uh, since pre-industrial times that scientists have warned us we must stay below, much less the more ambitious target of limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. So there's a long way to go. But there were three points, Desi Doyen, that caught my eye today. I want to get your thoughts on them. Uh, One of them came in uh, late this afternoon while I was trying to keep up with the latest progress at the conference. Three points that while none of them on their own will, you know, end global warming in and of themselves. And by the way, they have not yet been signed off officially or details have not been hashed out yet. But these points still seem noteworthy to me since it is the first time, particularly in these first two cases, that we're seeing this sort of language. And I believe these points, again, the first two in particular, will at least offer a very clear signpost to those of us paying attention about where all of this is eventually going, where all of this must go, at least as I see it. So I'll start with uh, point one. Uh, Early Wednesday morning, negotiators at the COP26 UN Climate Summit in Glasgow released a preliminary draft of an agreement on how countries will work together to curb climate change. I guess this would be the draft for the agreement that there's in theory, all supposed to sign at the end, right? And by the way, with the need for all of them to sign on to these things, that gives a whole hell of a lot of power to every little country in the world who wants to stop this thing, right? Yes, it does. That's 196 governments that all have to agree to every single word and punctuation in that text. So at the end of this thing, if the uh, tiny nation of Tuvalu Tuvalu wants to stop everything, they can. They can say this is not enough. We don't like it. Yes. And that has happened before in previous uh, climate summits where at the very last minute they go into overtime because these small Pacific Island nation states, for example, have halted all agreement with the final text to say, look, you need to give us more because what you guys have now is going to put us all underwater. And they're right. Because those countries are going to be the first to literally disappear. They're yes. also the, uh, the, the they've caused the least of the problem here. Correct. And yet they're paying the largest price. And so they want money, funding, help from the larger countries who are responsible for all of this problem. Right. So they do have that bargaining chip yeah. to withhold their agreement with the text. OK, so the draft deal. That uh, appeared today, I think. Uh, And, of course, it is subject to change. 
quote, calls upon parties to accelerate the phasing out of coal and subsidies for fossil fuels, even though it offers no hard deadline. Now, that may seem kind of obvious when we're dealing with this issue that, yeah, we need to phase out coal. We need to stop subsidies of fossil fuels. But in fact, neither the words coal nor fossil fuels was actually mentioned in the landmark Paris Agreement from uh, from 2015. The fact that they're saying coal and fossil fuels out loud does is apparently a big deal. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, it is. In diplomatic speak, that yeah. is huge to actually set a floor by saying the words for the first time out loud. <laughs> that means that they can never go back on saying those words, and that means that is where it is going. Even if it doesn't make it into the draft text for this meeting, it will it's actually it's out there now. But they it will be a lot more back. meaningful if it does get into the draft Absolutely. for this meeting. It would be huge. That language, as the Post Washington Post reports, will likely inspire pushback, will probably evolve over the final days of the conference. The uh, Jennifer Morgan, the executive director of Greenpeace International, uh, said, uh, quote, we think it's the first time you've had a phase out of coal in a U.N. text. Uh, she said, I expect this to be a very contested sentence moving forward. Saudi Arabia and other countries will come in and try to remove this paragraph, uh, even though it has no dates. But just mentioning those words. And by the way, Saudi Arabia is not a big coal country, but I guess they're seeing the writing on the wall. If we mention <laughs> coal here, well, oil is natural gas uh, that is big in Saudi Arabia. That's next. Correct, because everybody knows that in order to stave off climate catastrophe, mm -hmm. we must phase out all use of fossil fuels. The uh, director of the Kenya-based Power Shift Africa, Mohamed Adao, uh, noted, quote, it's fossil fuels that cause climate change. Explicitly mentioning it gets on the path to addressing it. Our task now, he said, is A, to protect that text, but also B, to strengthen it by making it happen faster, but also in an equitable manner. So uh, a, a, a lot going on around those words, the words coal <laughs> they do and carry, fossil fuels. They do carry a lot of weight. Yeah. All right. So that's one point to look for and, and noteworthy, a noteworthy point if nothing else happens out of this uh, summit, and it might not. Uh, point number two, at least six major automakers, including Ford, Mercedes-Benz, General Motors, and Volvo, and 30 national governments pledged on Wednesday to work toward phasing out sales of new gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles by 2040 worldwide and by 2035 in, quote, leading markets. Some of the world's biggest manu car manufacturers, however, including Toyota, Volkswagen, I'm surprised Volkswagen isn't on this yet, and uh, the Nissan Renault Alliance, they did not join the pledge, at least not yet, uh, even though this pledge is not legally binding. And the governments of the U.S., China and Japan, three of the largest car markets, they also abstained so far from joining this pledge. The announcement was hailed by climate advocates as yet another sign that the days of, international, of internal combustion engine could soon be numbered. Electric vehicles continue to set new global sales records each year, and major car companies have recently begun investing tens of billions to retool their factories and churn out new 
battery-powered cars and light trucks. To me, this is huge also. Uh, and, and these guys actually did make this pledge publicly. Ford, General Motors, Volvo saying, we are done. That's it. That's the end of ICE cars, internal combustion engine cars. That's it. It's over by 2040 worldwide, maybe, and, and 2035 in whatever leading markets mean. That's huge news. Seems to me and, you know, pay attention to it because if you want to unload that. Well, actually, I've been telling people if you want to unload your ice car now might be a very good time <laughs> to do that. But you know what? Uh, maybe hanging on to them uh, if they're going to not going to be selling them anymore might be a better idea. Maybe they'll be worth more down the road. I don't know. Well, it is a big deal and it does mean that there is momentum continuing to go forward in this direction. Although it is curious and weird that the U.S. Not did not just sign momentum, on. Not just momentum by the way. But this is a landmark. They are putting down a stake. Ford yeah. saying we are no longer going to make internal combustion cars after 2040. Really? That's huge. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, uh, so it, it is weird that the U.S. didn't sign on and there's probably some sort of political uh, horse trading going on within the U.S. domestically because of that. But the fact that several states, including California, mm -hmm. have already set limits to when they're going to completely ban the sale of new internal combustion engine cars in those states you know, California is the United States' largest car market mm -hmm. so as a state, so that's that's going to push it in that direction, and, even if the U.S. doesn't come out officially. And California did sign this pledge. So there so you go. So they were in on it as well. The uh, automakers that signed the pledge in total account for roughly one quarter of global sales in 2019. Uh, the countries that did join the coalition include Britain, Canada, India, the Netherlands, Norway, Poland, and Sweden. And yeah, you're right. Britain and Canada are there, but not the U.S. Come on, Joe Biden and John <laughs> Kerry. The addition of India, the, Post no uh, the Times notes, was uh, especially notable because it is the world's fourth largest auto market and has not previously committed to eliminating emissions from its cars on any specific timeline. So India right. jumping in is big. Now we're just waiting, I guess, for U.S., China, and Japan California, as I mentioned, uh, as a state on its own, signed the pledge, and so did Washington State. Way to go, Washington. Uh, last year, Governor Gavin Newsom out here in California signed an executive order saying that only new zero emissions vehicles would be sold in this state by 2035 which was big news at the time. But uh, Washington State had not previously made any such formal pledge, so they weren't as scared to sign on. No. Just the U.S. Speaking of the U.S. and China, here's the third point. Uh, late today from Washington Post, jolting U.N. climate talks in their waning days, the U.S. and China issued a surprise announcement on Wednesday pledging the two countries would work together to slow warming during this decade, this decade, and ensure that the Glasgow Climate Conference ends in success. So, you know, message to all of these losers over on Fox News and in the Republican Party who have said for years, oh, China won't do anything about climate change. We sh shouldn't do anything. 
until China does. Well, actually, China has been doing quite a bit when it comes to renewable energy. Yes. Much more than the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. You are not mistaken. China spends billions more than I think all other countries on deploying renewable energy. And now they're saying not only are we going to deploy renewable energy, but we are going to curb emissions and we're going to work with the U.S. to do it. Now, the Post reports the declaration was short on concrete deadlines and commitments, but its timing and tone seemed intended to grease the negotiations as they entered their crucial final stretch in Glasgow. The pledge to work together on climate from the world's two biggest emitters, bitter rivals in so many other arenas, was a sign that they wanted to carry the fractious talks to the finish line. U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry called the declaration, quote, a step we can build on in order to help close the gap on emissions. The U.S. and China have no shortage of differences, he added, but on climate cooperation is the only way to get this job done. So when they're talking about the gap on emissions, they're talking about what the uh, the gap between what the countries have so far pledged to cut and what needs to be cut in order to meet those uh, goals to stay below two degrees or one and a half degrees. Speaking uh, just ahead of John Kerry, China's special climate envoy, Xi Jinhua, I think, Good. said the uh, two countries would reiterate the importance of the Paris temperature goal of limiting warning to well below two degrees Celsius with a goal of not exceeding 1.5 degrees. Xi told reporters both sides recognize there is a gap between the current efforts and the Paris Agreement goals. As the world's two superpowers, he continued, the U.S. and China have a special obligation to work together. Uh, he said, quote, we need to think big and be responsible. We need to actively address climate change and uh, through cooperation, bring more benefit to our two peoples and to people around the world. Pressed by reporters, Xi would not say whether China would accept the portion of the conference draft that says the world should accelerate reductions in coal use over the next decade. But nonetheless, the surprise declaration was a boost to talks that are still teetering on the edge of failure to reach an agreement. The two countries, quote, declare their intention to work individually, jointly, and with other countries during this decisive decade, according to the statement, quote, to strengthen and accelerate climate action and cooperation aimed at closing the gap. Now, to be clear, even though there are no timelines or deadlines in this particular agreement announced by the United States and China, China did, for the first time, commit to addressing its emissions from methane. And that's a mm -hmm. big deal because methane is an extremely powerful climate warming gas. And if you can cut it quickly in the short term, that will have immediate effects globally in reducing our near-term warming. Yeah, China didn't say it, but John Kerry, I think, said it. China, He, he says that China said that they plan to uh, rapidly reduce methane emissions and to phase down coal, quote, as fast as is achievable. Which they're actually Whatever doing. That means. They're doing that faster now. They're already uh, reducing what they call their carbon intensity. Yeah. Um, they have made 
previous pledges that they've already met. And I think that is part of China's bargaining strategy to make these lowball targets that they know that they can easily meet. And then, of course, they'll beat them. So it looks like they're really doing great. Well, yeah. And, and well, we'll see. They're moving we faster see. for such a giant economy that is still trying to lift a majority of their residents out of poverty. And we'll see if all 196 countries can all get on the same page yes. by the end of the week to, uh, oh, you know, save humanity. That's all we're asking of them. All right. If uh, anyway, wanted to note those points because I think they are all quite notable and I suspect will not get the type of coverage they deserve. Anyway, uh, if if China and, and U.S. in the meantime are agreeing to work together on climate change, if that doesn't blow your mind, well, maybe our next segment will with uh, Brendan Fisher as the FEC has now determined that foreign nations, yes, including China, if they want may dump as much money as they want into U.S. elections, at least on ballot initiatives, which actually means a lot and, at least to me, is quite troubling. We will see if uh, Mr. Fisher feels the same. I'm sure he'll go easy on me this time, right? That's right after a quick break. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Yes, please. Please do. Please do, Brendan Fisher. Every time I have him on the show, it probably means my head is going to explode. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. We covered a number of the uh, referenda, the ballot initiatives and the constitutional propositions, etc., around the country in last week's off-year elections, some of which, for example, in New York, had somewhat surprising results with state voters there voting decisively against three progressive election reform propositions on the ballot, even while voting decisively in favor of an environmental initiative to establish the right in New York state's constitution to clean air, water and a healthful environment, which could open the door to new lawsuits against fossil fuel companies and uh, and against new projects that don't ensure clean air, water and healthful environment for residents. Some of these uh, initiatives are quite important to uh, folks in states all around the country. Why in New York, for example, did the environmental initiative pass, but not the election reform propositions for things like no excuse absentee voting and Election Day registration? Well, we don't know yet for sure. But there were reportedly targeted and well-funded efforts in right-leaning parts of the state to vote no on those election-related ballot measures. At the same time, in Maine, a ballot referendum to halt the construction of a $1 billion cross-border corridor of high-impact electric transmission lines with 
clean hydroelectric generated power from Canada attracted more than $89 million in funding through various ballot campaigns, more than any other referendum in Maine's history, according to Open Secrets. Supporters of the corridor poured more than $63 million um, fighting uh, against the ballot measure, which would have blocked the corridor. That uh, dwarfed around $26 million that was raised by ballot committees supporting the ballot measure to oppose the corridor. Yes, I know it's confusing. Maine voters ultimately passed the ballot measure to halt the corridor's construction on November 2nd. Maine question number one, the ballot measure that has now halted the construction of the cross-border corridor, attracted more spending than any referendum in state history in Maine. The passage of the measure marks the latest spar in a fight over the potential environmental and economic impact of the project, as well as the potential for undue foreign influence due to the companies who are involved in this project. The 145-mile-long transmission corridor, dubbed the New England Clean Energy Connect, if allowed to continue, as the ballot measure is now being challenged in court, would be owned by Central Maine Power Company and used by Hydro-Quebec to transmit electricity from hydroelectric plants in Quebec to electric utilities in the U.S. The Canadian government-owned company stands to make more than $12 billion from this project. The Quebec government's premier says he is still confident that the project will still be completed despite the vote last week. Even though the project would bring clean energy to Maine, the, uh, the project years in the making has faced staunch opposition from both environmental groups concerned with the impact that the corridor would have on wildlife and fossil fuel interests. They also oppose the corridor because that uh, they could lose regional power market share if it is built. Groups funded by U.S. companies with uh, stake in the construction of the corridor contributed heavily to the record-breaking cost of this ballot referendum. Millions of dollars by U.S.-owned fossil fuel interests supported the campaign to halt it. But millions of dollars was also contributed in support of the project by foreign-owned companies. Can they do that? Well, apparently, according to a new ruling by the U.S. Federal Elections Commission, if I understand this correctly, yes, they can. In a 4-2 decision, the FEC has affirmed that foreign nationals, including individuals, corporations, and even governments, can legally pour money into ballot measures in states that don't otherwise forbid it. That's because, according to the FEC's interpretation of the Federal Election Campaign Act, that law regulates, quote, only candidate elections, not referenda or other issue-based ballot measures, which means that foreign companies can directly spend to influence voters and policy at the state level, even while they cannot legally spend to influence candidates for public office, which just can't be right, can it? The decision stemmed from a 2018 complaint to the FEC alleging that a Canadian subsidiary of Australian firm Sandfire Resources illegally financed a measure to block new restrictions on hard rock mining in Montana. 
David Brooks, the executive director of Montana Trout Unlimited and one of the complainants in the case, called the FEC ruling, quote, surprising and scary, adding, are we as U.S. citizens really okay with letting foreign money go directly to state lawmaking via citizen initiative campaigns? Brendan Fisher, the director of federal and FEC reforms at the Campaign Legal Center, told Axios, quote, this FEC decision reflects a big loophole in the federal ban on foreign money in U.S. elections. Well, yeah, I would say so. Joining us now is Brendan Fisher, who directs the nonpartisan, nonprofit Campaign Legal Center's work before federal regulatory agencies like the FEC. Oh, Brendan Fisher, it has been a while, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Good to be back. You know, uh, we've had you on to explain some pretty insane stuff over the years on this show uh, when it comes to American elections and decisions from the FEC and so forth. But now, ballot referenda, according to the FEC, does not count as elections, which foreign nationals are otherwise barred from participating in under federal election laws, but they can put as much money into influencing state ballot initiatives, American state ballot initiatives as they want. Uh, foreign entities have a <laughs> official green light to put millions of dollars into campaigns to change laws that affect everyday American citizen lives. Do I actually understand that correctly, Brendan? <laughs> Uh, you do. That is that is correct. Um, you know, the the federal law bans foreign nationals from spending any money in connection with U.S. elections. Uh-huh. Uh huh. An asterisk on that election. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the broadest bans in federal campaign finance law. It applies not only to federal elections, but it also applies to state elections and even local elections. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the election for your for your county board or, or your school board. Uh, foreign money cannot go to those candidate elections. Uh, and this uh, pro- pro- prohibition is on solid constitutional grounds. Um, after Citizens United, uh, the, the foreign national contribution and expenditure prohibition was, was challenged in court, and it was upheld. And it was upheld by uh, then-judge Brett Kavanaugh mm-hmm. uh, when he was on uh, the D.C. District Court. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a, it's a broadband on solid constitutional footing, but uh, the FEC has interpreted it to only apply to candidate elections and not apply to uh, state or local ballot referenda. Um, And it's kind of an insane outcome, but it isn't necessarily an insane reading of the statute or the legislative history. I I think this is one of those cases where the FEC could have come out differently, um, but unlike some of the other cases where the FEC contorts itself uh, not to enforce the law or contorts itself to interpret the law in the most narrow way possible, mm-hmm. you know, this is not a totally crazy, not a totally crazy or unfounded interpretation. Um, so really, it, it, it falls to Congress or the states to act and to and to plug this loophole. Um, and it seems like there might be some momentum. Do that. And, uh, yeah, just to be clear, the FEC chair here, Shauna Broussard, she's a Democrat. She voted with the panel's three Republicans, as I understand it, to uh, dismiss the underlying complaint in that uh, in that hard rock mining uh, ballot uh, committee in Montana. Um, 
even though it, you know, the challengers thought this was illicit foreign funding, apparently it's not, even though it seems pretty distasteful, at least to me, you're suggesting that her interpretation of the federal law is not in and of itself insane. That's right, yeah, and, it, and it's actually consistent with some of the past FEC, FEC um, interpretations of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually not the first time that it's come up before the FEC. It's come up in some regulatory matters, and then there was a, a, 20, uh, a complaint that was resolved in 2015 involving uh, a foreign pornographer uh, who poured money into a California ballot measure uh, that would have required condoms uh, in in porn, <laughs> and there was a, a complaint filed then, uh-huh. and the and the FEC similarly interpreted interpreted the law to to only apply to candidate elections and not to wow. uh, ballot measures. And that's the... uh, and this was the nonpartisan staff attorneys who made that recommendation. And, um, and you know, yeah, that's so. It's not a it's not a uh, it's not an unfounded interpretation. And and the chair. Uh, Shanna Broussard did issue a statement of, a statement of reasons and urged Congress to to act uh, to act and to you know, clarify uh, that the foreign national ban applies to spending on ballot measures. And this would be the uh, the Federal Election Campaign Act being interpreted here, as I understand it, correct? That's right. Yeah. The- and and the decision here by the FEC would only regard the way federal law is interpreted. States, meanwhile, are apparently free, if they want, at least for now, to outlaw foreign funding for state-registered ballot committees. Seven states apparently already do that. California, Colorado, Maryland, Nevada, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Washington. But is this a case where a party could challenge that to say that, hey, the federal supremacy clause means that federal laws, uh, pardon the phrase, trump state laws in this case, so that those state laws could also be challenged, uh, you know, similar to the restrictions that we saw on bans on corporate funding in elections after uh, after Citizens United, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, and generally, federal law preempts uh, preempts state efforts, or federal campaign finance law preempts mm-hmm. state efforts to regulate federal elections. Um, but because uh, a state law would only govern uh, ballot measures in that state, mm. uh, you know, I think there'd be a hard argument that federal campaign finance law preempted it. Uh, because you know, at the, the, the FEC's interpretation is that federal campaign finance law is silent as to the federal prohibition, uh, as to the application of the foreign national prohibition to state and local ballot measures. Yeah, but I'm, and maybe I'm remembering this wrong, I feel like it was uh, Montana, where they had a a state prohibition against corporate money in state elections, and that was overturned. Am Am I remembering that correctly? I feel like that was overturned because of Citizens United. They said, nope, you can't bar uh, corporate money even in state elections. I, I hope I'm misremembering that. Do you, do you recall? Yeah, that's if th- that's right. Uh, but there, there was less of a, a preemption issue. It wasn't that the court decided that Congress had enacted a law that preempted Montana's law. It mm-hmm. was more that the Supreme Court in Citizens United uh, interpreted the U.S. Constitution to prohibit mm. uh, corporate independent expenditure bans. So they uh. basically said you know, that the U.S. Supreme Court has already spoken on the constitutionality of, of this law, mm. uh, and therefore the state law is unconstitutional, um, which is distinct from 
saying that you know Congress prohibited the state from acting in this area. Gotcha. Okay. So one's a constitutional violation. This is just a question of federal law. Now, in Maine, where that Canadian-owned uh, power company financed the ballot committee campaign to uh, push to allow the new clean energy transmission lines, uh, the governor there, Janet Mills, a Democrat, actually vetoed legislation to ban foreign ballot measure funding. She said, quote, entities with direct foreign investment employ thousands of Mainers and that banning spending by those companies, quote, is offensive to the democratic process. (laughs) Is it really, Brendan Fisher? (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think so. And and I don't think um, I don't think most voters uh, from both parties uh-huh. would, would agree with that. And, and this was a bill. So, you know, this was the, um, you described the foreign government spending mm-hmm. on this main ballot measure. Mm-hmm. And that was really controversial in Maine. Mm-hmm. And voters, uh, both Republican and Democrat, were unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. And there was a bipartisan bill uh, that passed the state legislature that would prohibit foreign governments and foreign government-owned corporations uh, from spending to influence state and local ballot measures. And it, and it passed, it passed with bipartisan support, and the governor vetoed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a surprising and disappointing outcome. But that is the, the justification that she gave for the veto is something you hear once in a while uh, when it comes to prohibitions on foreign, foreign-owned or foreign-controlled corporations from spending money in U.S. elections. You know, that they, it might be that they employ some U.S. Uh, U.S. nationals, you know, but that's kind of besides the point. Right. <laughs> that's what that's what it yeah. seems to me, and it seems you know this is uh, one of those interesting issues. I know I noticed there's been you know there's quite a few Republicans who are speaking out against the FEC ruling. I'm happy to see that. And it was, you know, in fact, the FEC's Democratic chair who was uh, the deciding vote here, uh, even though I think the other two uh, Democrats voted against it. But is is this a bipartisan thing where both Republicans and Democrats are opposed uh, to the idea in some places, but maybe they're in favor of it in others, largely depending on what is you know going on in their particular state, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think many of the, the state laws that have been passed have been... Uh, enacted on a bipartisan basis, and then, like you said, after this FEC decision became public last week, uh, there have been an outpouring of statements from lawmakers pledging to lawmakers from both parties pledging to to plug this loophole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Katie Porter, Representative Katie Porter, who's a Democrat, uh, has a bill to extend the foreign national ban to local ballot measures. Uh, Elise Stefanik. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all people, <laughs> came came out and said that she she was also going to introduce a bill. Wow. Uh, Marco Rubio uh, also said that he was he was going to try and do something on this. So there's a, a surprising amount of um, bipartisan support for for plugging this loophole. Uh, and it also should be noted that the the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, the big mm-hmm. uh, the big voting rights and campaign finance reform bill supported by Joe Manchin also includes a provision that would extend oh. the, the foreign national prohibition to state and local ballot measures. Good. Okay. All we have to do is figure out how to reform the filibuster and get that through on all Democratic votes. And the, the, I guess we'll have that, at least, in the Freedom to Vote Act. Good to know that's there. I'm wondering, uh, Brendan, uh, sh- should this even be, you know, I mentioned that there are seven states who outlaw it specifically. 
um, under state law, and I don't think the FEC ruling uh, changes their ability to do that if they wish to at the state level. But should it even be a state issue? I mean, shouldn't this be a, a federal statute uh, to simply prevent foreign companies from participating at all, period, end of story, in American elections? Yes, even ballot referenda? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, states, states and localities have... Mm-hmm. had to step in because Congress and the FEC again and again have failed to take action to protect our democracy and protect our elections from foreign interference. But but this is this is a national security issue. Um, you know, it's easy to imagine scenarios where Russian or Chinese interests would would pour a lot of money into a ballot measure uh, on an issue that would have a, a direct impact on uh, their foreign policy aims or their economic uh, economic interests, and it would be entirely permissible under under current law. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why why Congress should act here, uh, not least of which is because you know, this is ultimately a, a national security issue. Uh, Axios had pointed out in their coverage of the story that a major question still stemming from the decision is whether foreign nationals are now permitted to spend money to influence the actual mechanisms of the U.S. democratic process, for example, congressional redistricting, which is frequently the subject of uh, ballot referenda, well, you could have foreign nationals putting money into deciding congressional redistricting issues. Uh, Why not? Nothing seems to stop them under this FEC ruling. Is that how you're reading it as well? Yeah, I think it's an open question. Um, so the, the the analysis that the that the FEC agreed to did acknowledge that there's past precedent for uh, applying the foreign national ban to ballot ballot measures that are tied to a candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's there's an argument that many ballot measures that would pertain to redistricting or the electoral process uh, would would you know, be sufficiently connected to candidates and the act of voting that foreign nationals would be banned from from spending on them. But you know, it's it's certainly it's certainly an open question. It's not it's not directly uh, it has not been directly addressed by the FEC. Um, and and the risk of that the risk of that happening is another reason why Congress. Congress needs to act. Yeah, needs to act now before it happens, because uh, as I understand it, when it comes to these FEC rulings, it's, you know, to say it's an open question, well, that means it's going to happen. There's going to be the money. It's going to go through in an election. And then it's only after it's already done that it gets challenged by the FEC, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, So, you know, certainly there could be a uh, a foreign government or a foreign corporation that is willing to push the legal envelope and spend money on a ballot measure pertaining to re- redistricting uh-huh. or voting rights. And what would happen is they, uh, what would happen is that a complaint would be filed, and you know, years down the road, right. uh, the FEC would decide whether that contribution violated the law or not. And at worst, maybe they would get a fine. Um, it's a it's a reason why you know again this is a reason why Congress needs to act now uh, and not wait for uh, the FEC to be forced to confront this issue um, and to only do so after the fact. After the damage is done. Uh, speaking with uh, Brendan Fisher, director of federal reform at the nonpartisan nonprofit campaign legal center. 
The government special counsel's office this week issued a scathing report on their months-long investigation that began during the Trump administration, and it was actually carried out by a Trump-appointed Republican, I believe. Uh, the, they found that the that 13, 13 high-level members of the Trump administration, including cabinet members like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, blatantly and even knowingly violated, sometimes repeatedly, the Federal Hatch Act. Now, that bars federal officials from using their offices to campaign for candidates, uh, in this case, for Donald Trump. Yet it seems that even though many of these officials knew they were violating the Hatch Act, they didn't actually care. And frankly, for a good reason, as I understand it, the penalty for violating the Hatch Act is left up to the president himself, who can either reprimand the official in some way or actually do nothing at all. Is that it? Do I understand it correctly? Is that the penalty for violating the Hatch Act? Uh, well, if you are close to President Trump, then yes, there is no penalty for violating the Hatch Act. Um, but for millions of other federal employees across the country, uh, the penalties for violating the Hatch Act could be could be very severe. Um, you know, for most for most federal employees, including political political appointees, the the enforcement happens you know, within the agency itself. Mm. So, you know, if you are a postal worker uh, who you know, delivers the mail and tells people to vote for Joe Biden, mm -hmm. you know, their supervisor is likely going to fire them. Um, yeah, there's a number of examples of this. If you're an IRS employee who is working the taxpayer hotline and you know, at the end of at the end of the conversation, you say, "Don't forget to reelect Joe Biden," or "Don't forget to vote for Democrats." Uh, don't forget to, to vote for Democrats in 2022. You know, you're you're likely going to lose your job, or you're going to be suspended. There's going to be some pretty severe severe consequences. Uh, but if you are in the White House uh, and you use your official authority to influence elections and use government resources to influence elections then it's up to the president to decide uh, what consequences you might face. And with President Trump, he decided that nobody would face any consequences. So multiple White House employees uh, continue to violate the law. That seems a problem to me and something that, uh, well, I'll ask you about in a minute. But just, so just to clarify, you know, uh, political appointees in the White House, this this is matter of fact, the Hatch Act, as I understand, it doesn't actually apply to either the vice president or the president at all, that they can they're allowed to do whatever they want uh, campaign wise uh, in, in their official uh, posts. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. President, vice president are exempted, but uh, all other all other employees, inclu including cabinet officials, are subject to the Hatch Act. So you have cabinet officials like Mike, Mike Pompeo. He gives a speech from Israel uh, during the Republican uh, uh, National uh, uh, Convention last year. You had another guy uh, who actually staged a naturalization ceremony for uh, for new citizens in the White House, recorded it, and then played it during the RNC, and they were told reportedly in advance to not do this because it would be a violation of the Hatch Act. They did it anyway. They faced no punishment from the president who gets to decide if there's any punishment at all. If that's the case, 
Well, A, do you have any idea why the law was written this way? And, you know, I mean, what is the purpose of it? And 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 B, if that is the case, shouldn't this decades old law, you know, be amended right now to add some teeth to it for crying out loud? <laughs> how, yes. how would that be yes. done if so? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the I think in the past, the assumption was that the president would penalize uh political appointees who violated the Hatch Act, uh, that presidents you know, would not want the bad, at a minimum, would not want the bad publicity mm-hmm. uh, that comes from repeated Hatch Act violations, but also would recognize that they have a responsibility to set a good example for the rest of the federal government and mm-hmm. not uh, give the impression that there's a two-tiered system where there's one set of rules for people close to the president and another set of rules for all other federal workers. Um, but you know, that is not how Trump approached uh, the Hatch Act. So there is something that can be done about it. There's actually a bill uh, introduced, the Protecting Our Democracy Act, uh, Mm -hmm. that would strengthen the Hatch Act and strengthen the the enforcement mechanism. So, uh, you know, the the Hatch Act violations are, the the enforcement of Hatch Act violations is not left up to the whim of the president. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that would be good. I mean, and, but I'm wondering, you know, are, are any of these issues we, we talked about in the previous segment, the Federal Election Campaign Act and now the Hatch Act, is there, you know, is, is it possible that there can be enough bipartisan support on those two issues that it could overcome Republican intransigence in Congress on seemingly any election reform-related legislation? In the Senate, as you know, they've already filibustered uh, several times. The, the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act are either of these points, because, I mean, at this point, nothing stops anybody in the uh, Biden administration from going out there and politicking, you know, in their roles as federal officials. I would think Republicans would have some concern about that. Are, are you getting a sense that there is bipartisan cooperation on either of these two things? Because it would be a big deal, uh, I would think, in both cases, if they were able to, to do something about these laws. Yeah, that's that's right. Um yeah, with, with a with a uh, Democratic president in the White House, any any ethics reform that you pass to strengthen enforcement against White House White House staffers is going to affect the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So you would think that Republicans would be would be on board with that, especially those who, in the past, in a pre-Trump world, you know, were, were concerned about the use of public resources for political activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's yet to be seen. It remains to be seen. You know, there certainly are some Republicans who have expressed concern about some of these Hatch Act violations, whether there are enough in the Senate to uh, bypass the filibuster, you know, remains to be remains to be seen. Um, but certainly you would hope you would hope there'd be bipartisan support for something as as simple as preventing uh, federal employees from misusing government resources for private political gain and making sure that white white house officials are subject to the same rules as any other federal employee you you would hope but i'll tell you i saw there was some uh violation apparently by uh jen saki uh the uh, uh biden uh, uh, uh press secretary 
And, of course, Fox News was, you know, Jen Psaki violates the Hatch Act. They were furious about it after ignoring case after case for the last four years. And I wonder, you know, they can be furious about it, but I think they can rest pretty easy that, well, she was actually reprimanded uh, for that by the president. They can rest easy that a Democratic president is going to do that. And they can know that, well, uh, Republican presidents may not give a damn. So... It would be a surprise if uh, they were able to uh, uh, clean up the Hatch Act, but I'm all in favor of it. Uh, sounds like the Campaign Legal Center may be as well. Uh, Brendan Fisher, Director of Federal Reform at the Campaign Legal Center. He has his work cut out for him as usual. You can find their work at campaignlegal.org, and you can find Brendan on the Twitters at Brendan underscore Fisher. Brendan, always great speaking with you, my friend, even if it makes my head explode. Thank you, Brad. Uh, good to be with you. Thanks. Okay, so, uh, Des, uh, bad news, as usual, for democracy. <laughs> yes. But, as you may recall at the beginning of the show, I also promised some bad news for Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. So there's that. That is Straight Ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com donate. You're listening to an encore presentation of The Bradcast. We'll be back soon. You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes, well, you might find You get what you need Now, isn't that... Isn't that the song that Trump used to always play after his campaign rallies? Absolutely. I believe he still does. I think it's high time we reclaim it. (laughs) (sighs) Sad, sad, because it doesn't look like he's getting what he wants, at least so far. uh, As you may have heard, late on Tuesday, a federal judge rejected Donald Trump's request to block the release of documents to the House committee who is investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. In denying a preliminary injunction, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin said Congress had a strong public interest in obtaining records that could shed light on the violent insurrection mounted by the former president's supporters, which I will note as a bipartisan uh, 57 vote majority in the U.S. Senate determined that was, in fact, incited by the then current president, now former president Donald Trump himself. The judge added that President Joe Biden has the authority to waive executive privilege over the documents despite Trump's assertion. Otherwise, he was insisting that even though he is no longer the president, he is allowed to assert uh, executive privilege to block these documents from being released uh, from his days at the White House uh, regarding January 6th. Trump has said he would appeal the ruling, but barring a court order from an appeals court or the stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court, the National Archives, at least as of this hour, plans to uh, turn over Trump's records to the committee this Friday. Chutkin wrote in her ruling at bottom, this is a dispute between a former and incumbent president and the Supreme Court has already made clear that in such circumstances, the incumbent's view is accorded greater weight. 
Chutkin said uh, she noted examples of past presidents declining to assert executive privilege for former presidents and rejected what she said was Trump's claim that executive privilege, quote, exists in perpetuity. Uh, Quote, she wrote, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. (laughs) Uh, and that part had to uh, cut the worst, I suspect. Uh, that from her pretty scathing 39-page ruling. Claims of executive privilege now thoroughly rejected by the U.S. District Court, at least this court. It was those claims that Trump's former aide, Steve Bannon, who was fired way back in 2017, it was those claims of executive privilege by the former president that Bannon was attempting to hide behind in order to avoid answering the House committee's uh, subpoena for documents and testimony that resulted in a referral by the full House to the Department of Justice to bring charges of criminal contempt of Congress against Steve Bannon. You know, he was basically saying, well, the uh, the president, the former president, he didn't call him former, but, you know, Donald Trump has asserted executive privilege saying that I can't testify. I can't turn over these documents. Well, now a judge has said, sorry, that former president has no such powers to do so, which would seem to be a signal to Bannon that, well, uh, any of his claims are also going to fail in court. So now will Attorney General Merrick Garland and the DOJ finally indict Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress? We will see. And when and if they do, that will send a very clear message to the dozens of others who are currently stonewalling the committee to let them know that they better answer their subpoenas to avoid potentially a year in federal prison for contempt of Congress, just as Steve Bannon will be facing when and if he is actually indicted uh, by the uh, Department of Justice. That's a lot of whens and ifs. Yep. But I I, I don't know how uh, the DOJ avoids it at this point. Uh, Josh Marshall notes today uh, the key is the judge's finding that since the executive branch and Congress are in full agreement about what should happen, that really settles the matter. There is no dispute now between any parties with any standing to dispute anything. The legislative and executive branches all agree the National Archives must begin producing the documents by Friday. Trump is just a private citizen who used who used to have the powers exercised today by Joe Biden, with Josh adding elections have consequences. Thank you. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our guest today, Campaign Legal Center's Brendan Fisher, to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we made it worth your while. If we did, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do so day after day after day. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.